Thank you. We appreciate that so very, very, very much. Uh, we're going to come now to Daniel chapter 8, and go and uh, from here on, it's shifting from God's rule over the Gentiles, and it's going to shift over to God's rule over Israel, over Israel. And uh, Daniel, you know, he's been receiving all this information about these Gentile rule and everything going on uh, throughout the course of history, is beginning to wonder, what about my people, Israel? What's going to happen to our people of Israel during this particular time? And uh, he, when we come to chapter 8, he's given another dream, another vision by God. And uh, this one had, again, two animals uh, in, in his dream. And one of them uh, was a ram that had two horns on its head, one horn being higher than the other one. And in the interpretation, that represented the Medo-Persian kingdom. And uh, interestingly, the Medo-Persian kings, when they led their armies into battle, normally had a hollowed-out ram's head on their head and everything. That was the, apparently the symbol that they developed and everything for their own Medo-Persian kingdom. And so this ram is there. It has two horns in his head. The one higher than the other one represents the Medo-Persian, the, the, the Persians, as we indicated with the lopsided bear, after a while gained ascendancy over the other party, the Medes. But while Daniel was watching that dream, all of a sudden, he sees a he-goat coming from the west, running so fast that it almost looks as if uh, it's on air at everything. And that one had a huge horn right in the middle of its head between its eyes. And as Daniel was given the interpretation, the, the first animal with the two horns was Medo-Persia, but this goat coming from the west is representing Greece. And the main horn, the one horn on the head, was Alexander the Great, representing Alexander the Great. And he watched that goat slam into the ram, trample it to the ground, breaking its horns at everything else, which again was God's way of demonstrating to Daniel that Greece was going to conquer Medo-Persia at everything. But why is God doing this when Daniel is concerned Okay, so much for the Gentile kings. What about my people of Israel? What's going to happen to us? And what God was going to uh, reveal then is now Greece is the dominant world power and Alexander the Great is its ruler. But again, that horn gets shattered. God's way of demonstrating Alexander the Great is going to die very shortly. Uh, over in where Medo-Persia used to be, and over in Babylon, he, he became so enamored with the city of Babylon, he decided to continue there for the rest of his life, but he came down with an illness. And just in a few short days, he died at a very young age, in his early 30s. And then, as Daniel's watching this goat, four horns come up and everything, again, indicating that uh, his four leading generals are going to take charge of the Grecian kingdom after Alexander the Great dies, but
But again, only two of them become dominant. And so in the, in the rest of this, he focuses on the, the, uh, the uh, dream and everything that Daniel has, focuses on two of those rulers. The one that's located south of Israel in the land of Egypt, and the other one north of Israel in the nation of Syria, the nation of Syria. And then it begins to talk about uh, these two different uh, areas of rule, Greek rule. And they begin to wage war against each other, interestingly, even though they're both from the same Grecian kingdom. And uh, the ones in Egypt want to gain the ascendancy over those up in, Greece, up in Syria. Those in Syria will counteract and try to gain control of Egypt. And so they're waging war back and forth, back and forth, back and forth, back and forth against each other. And of course, who's right in the middle between them? The nation of Israel. And so the people of Israel, because Daniel's wondering, what's going to happen to our nation with all these changes of Gentile rule? They're right in the middle of this warfare between these two Grecian rulers and several rulers in both of these divisions of Syria and Egypt. And so that as these armies are marching back and forth across the land of Israel, the people of Israel are suffering because of these groups going back and forth, back and forth, back and forth, and back and forth. Well, finally, his dream uh, ends up focusing on one of the major rulers from up in Syria, a man by the name of Antiochus, Antiochus IV. He was a Greek descendant of Alexander the Great's Grecian kingdom. He comes to the throne in the Syria division of the Grecian kingdom. And after a while, he became known as Epiphanes, Antiochus Epiphanes, E-P-I-P-H-A-N-E-S. And uh, this man got to the point where, in essence, uh, he wanted the god, the, the Greek god, the chief Greek god, to be worshipped by all people, where he would rule. And he came to the point where he was going to go down and lead another war against Egypt and take control of that. But when he got down there, Rome was a rising power in the Mediterranean Sea. And Rome already had a legion of angels, not angels, of soldiers, and a general over them there in the land of Egypt. So they are getting entrenched there in Egypt to take control of Egypt when this guy from up in Syria, Antiochus Epiphanes, comes down wanting to take control of Egypt. And so now there's going to be a clash between the Romans and Antiochus Epiphanes and his Greek Syrian soldiers. And what happened was the, the Roman general confronted Antiochus Epiphanes and he took a rod and he drew a circle right around Antiochus Epiphanes' feet. This is in the ancient records. And he says to Antiochus Epiphanes, you have to make a decision one way or the other before you step outside that circle. Either you're going to try to attack us and drive us out of Egypt, or you're not going to attack us, you're going to leave here and go back home to Syria. Well, when Antiochus looked at the Roman legions, he knew that his troops were no match for the Romans. So to, 
for his own good health, he made the decision, we're not going to attack the Romans. So he decided, we're going to go back home to our troops, back up to Syria. But when they get up to the land of Israel, Antiochus takes complete control of the nation of Israel. And he's determined to force the Jews to reject the God of Israel and to worship exclusively the chief Greek god, Zeus. And he took control of their new temple. You know, when when Medo-Persia conquered Babylon, King Cyrus, in 538, the year after they conquered Babylon, King Cyrus officially ended the Babylonian captivity of the Jews in 538 B.C. And he told the Jews, if you'd like to, return home to your homeland and rebuild, and rebuild. The the Persians were very kind to the Jews back at that time. They even uh, helped them get resources, materials, and everything else to rebuild Jerusalem and rebuild the temple there as well. Anyhow, uh, that ended the Babylonian captivity of the Jews. But now, uh, after Medo-Persia was conquered by Greece and the chief Greek ruler dies, and you've got now these rulers, Greek rulers in Syria and down below, the Jews for years now had had the temple. They had their Old Testament priesthood revived. They were offering sacrifices there to God as God had instructed them to do under the Mosaic law. But when Antiochus Epiphanes comes up from Egypt towards Syria but gets to Israel, he's determined he's going to wipe out the worship of Jehovah by the people of Israel. And he outlaws their following the law of God with the Ten Commandments. He takes control of the temple, their new temple there, puts an end to the Israeli priesthood, He builds a pagan altar of sacrifice over top of God's altar of sacrifice and he erects a huge image of their Greek God there and he commands the Jews, you reject the worship of your God Jehovah and from now on you worship exclusively our God as the true and the living God. Now you know that under the Mosaic law, pigs were a defiling animal under the Mosaic law. So to show all the more what he's going to do to Israel, he brings his soldiers with pigs into God's temple and throw them up on top of the pagan altar of sacrifice and defile God's temple with pigs to offer sacrifices to their chief Greek god, Zeus. Then uh, he forbade the Jews following God's law to circumcise their boy babies. And he was going to enforce this upon them. And if they found boy babies who'd been circumcised, they would send their soldiers in, they would kidnap that boy baby, and in that community where he was circumcised, they'd ram a sharp stake up through the body of that boy baby and put it down in the ground in the town square and let that baby dangle until it died. And he'd say to the Jew, this is what's going to happen to all of your children if you don't reject the worship of your God and worship exclusively our chief Greek God, Zeus. And so he defiled this, and and he knew that the Jews would never uh, fight on the Sabbath day because that would be a breaking of the Sabbath. 
And so if there was one community of Jews who were rebelling against his policies, he waited till the Sabbath day and sent his Greek Syrian soldiers in to massacre the Jews because they knew the Jews wouldn't defend themselves. And so this is what was going on. And here's Satan trying through brute force of Gentile dominion to force the people of Israel away from the worship of the true and the living God. Well, by God's grace, and God was revealing all of this to Daniel through this dream ahead of time of of what's going to happen in the future. So that that begins with chapter 8. So now the focus is going to be on God's rule with regard to to Israel or what's going to happen to them. While all these Gentile kingdoms are still going to be going on into the future. There was a, a priestly group of men called the Maccabees there, and they began to revolt against this rule by Antiochus Epiphanes in the land of Israel. And they were able to gather a whole group of Jewish men around them and, and basically train them in what we would call guerrilla warfare. And they began fighting against Antiochus Epiphanes and the Greek Syrian soldiers there. And many of the, uh, the Jewish men lost their lives in this, but by God's grace, they were enabled finally to defeat Antiochus Epiphanes, and he and what was left of his men had to leave and go back up to Syria. And it wasn't too long after that that Antiochus died at everything. And so God now, beginning with chapter 8, is beginning to reveal to Daniel, here's what's going to happen to the people of Israel. Uh, By the way, the dates of this, Antiochus started this against Israel in 171 B.C., and he was finally driven out in 165 B.C., 165 B.C. Now, God sent the angel Gabriel to Daniel to explain to him different aspects of this dream that he had. And the angel Gabriel told Daniel that his activity uh, of Antiochus Epiphanes would be part of the latter portion of the indignation. This is a technical term there in Daniel chapter 8 that you ought to be aware of. The latter portion of the indignation. The latter portion of the indignation. And so Gabriel was saying to Daniel, this evil activity of Antiochus Epiphanes is part of, it's the latter portion of the indignation. Now what did he mean by the indignation? The term indignation refers to the period of history when God is indignant or angry with Israel because of its rebellion against him. Again, that's what it's referring to in Daniel. It's a technical term. For the period of time when God is indignant or angry with Israel because of its rebellion against him. And when you look at from chapter 8 on, that whole period called the indignation is divided into two parts. Is divided into two parts. And in our commentary in Daniel, we have this charted out and everything so you can see this, the indignation, divided into two parts. The former portion of the indignation was the Assyrian and Babylonian captivities. You know, back in the 700s B.C., uh, because the ten northern tribes had rebelled against uh, the two southern tribes, and they separated with the northern kingdom of Israel. 
and the very first king of the northern kingdom uh, told the people of Israel up there, don't go down to Jerusalem uh, to worship God. Look, I've made two uh, images for you here of an animal, one in the southern part of our northern kingdom and one in the northern part of the northern kingdom, and worship these. This is the God that brought us our ancestors out of Egypt down here. So the very first king of the northern kingdom of Israel was a rebel against God, an apostate, and telling the northern Jews, don't go down to Jerusalem to worship the God down there. Worship these gods up here. By the way, uh, archaeologists have been doing a lot of digging in uh, the remains of the northern kingdom of Israel. And way up north, they've uncovered the platform where the, the northern false image was erected there by the first king there of the northern kingdom of Israel. You can walk on it. We've been over there once and have seen it. We're able to walk on that. I remember as a boy in Sunday school, we were taught all about this. And our teacher even had little cardboard forms and everything of these images and the platform and all the rest. It was fascinating to see it with your own eyes, you know, that it was, it was actually there. So that God became indignant with the people of Israel, not to reject them, but to deal with them, to chastise them, and everything to try to break their rebellion against him, their rebellion against him. So the indignation refers to the period of history when God is indignant or angry with Israel because of its rebellion against him. And so the former portion of it includes the Assyrian captivity because as a result of the continuous rebellion against God in the northern kingdom, God raised up the great power of Assyria. And in the 700s BC, a massive Assyrian army came down through the northern frontiers of the northern kingdom of Israel, destroying cities and killing Jews, until finally they, they leveled the capital city, Samaria, of the northern kingdom of Israel, literally to the ground. And I've been to the ruins of that. Must have been magnificent. Great uh, buildings with big stone pillars and all the rest, but they're scattered all over the ground there where the Assyrians did that. And the Assyrians killed many of the Jews. And they uh, took uh, a lot number of the Jews out of there and scattered them out of the nations and left just a small group there. That was part of God's indignation against Israel back in the 700s BC. But then uh, the other part is the Babylonian captivities. That's another part of the former portion of the indignation of God against Israel, the Babylonian captivity. And of course, Babylon was the one that came and starting in 605 BC, started carrying the Jews captive from their homeland over to Babylon. And we saw that, how Daniel and his friends were the first part of that in 605 BC. About 10 years after that, Ezekiel and other Jews were carried captive over to Babylon as well. And then more and more of the Jews were deported from their homeland over to Babylon. So the Assyrian captivity, the Babylonian captivity, were the former portion of God's program of indignation against Israel. Then, and those captivities were from 734 to 538 BC. 734, the Assyrians came down against the northern kingdom, and the Babylonian captivity ended in 538 BC. We saw this morning with Belshazzar's feast and how the Medo-Persians conquered the capital city on October 13th, 539 BC. 
Babylon now fell, fell under the domain of the Medo-Persians. The very next year, King Cyrus of Medo-Persia, 538 B.C., officially ends the Babylonian captivity of the Jews and told them, go back home now and begin rebuilding and everything, at Jerusalem, your temple, and all the rest. You're free to go back there again. So that was the, the former portion of the indignation against, of God against Israel, the Assyrian and Babylonian captivities. But then there's a latter portion of the indignation, latter portion of the indignation. And it's also called uh, the time of the end, the time of the end, the time of the end. And that latter portion began in 538 B.C., 538 B.C., where the Jews are under the dominion of the Medo-Persians, and then, of course, they came under the dominion of the Greeks with their empire. Then they came under the dominion of the Romans with their empire. And they've had trouble, you know, ever since. When Islam came into existence in the 600s AD, they swept right up through the land of Israel and conquered it, destroyed synagogues and churches that were there in the 600s AD. All that's part of the latter portion of God's nation with the people of Israel. And we'd have to even look at the Holocaust as part of that. If you look at, at uh, Deuteronomy 28, God through Moses told the people of Israel, here's how God's going to deal with you in a two-fold way in, in the future. Number one, when you listen to and obey my commandments I've given to you, I will bless you more than any other nation upon planet Earth. You'll always be the head nation. You'll never be the tail nation. But if you do not listen to and obey my word, my commandments I've given to you, I will curse, vex, and frustrate you. I'll never destroy you, but I'm going to vex and frustrate you. And one of the ways I'll do that is I'll raise up foreign powers against you. They will remove you from your, ha from your homeland, and you'll be scattered among the nations. Scattered among the nations. In fact, take your Bible, if you would, please. It's important for us to see this. Deuteronomy chapter 28. Deuteronomy chapter 28, where God is spelling this out to Israel. This is the twofold way I'm going to deal with you, Israel. Right up until, really, it's going to be to the second coming of Christ, second coming of Christ. Deuteronomy chapter 28. Look, if you would, what he's talking about when they disobey him. Look at verse 64 of Deuteronomy 28. The Lord shall scatter you among all people. He'll raise up foreign powers. They're going to remove you from your homeland. And so through them the Lord will scatter you among all people from one end of the earth even unto the other. There you shall serve other gods which neither you nor your fathers have known, even wood and stone. And among these nations shall you find no ease. In other words, once you're scattered to one nation, you're going to try to settle down there permanently but you won't be able to because they're going to turn against you and then you're going to be forced to scatter to another nation. So among these nations you shall find no ease, neither shall the sole of your foot have rest. But the Lord shall give you there a trembling heart and failing of eyes and sore of mind. Your life shall hang in the doubt before you. You shall fear day and night and shall have none assurance of your life. In the morning you shall say, would God over evening. The idea is to see if I'm going to survive this day or not. And at evening, you shall say, would God, it were morning to see if I'm going to survive this night or not. For the fear of your heart wherewith you shall fear, for the sight of your eyes 
which you shall see. Look at those words. That's a graphic description of what happened to Jews during the lifetime of many of us in this room right now. The Holocaust of World War II. Do you know that the total world population of Jews in the early 1930s before the Holocaust began was about 17 million people. That was it, worldwide, about 17 million Jews. In fewer than five years, the Nazis and their collaborators systematically eliminated more than one-third of the world's total population of Jews from planet Earth. Notice, when it's morning, you don't know if you're going to be alive that evening. If you are when it's evening, you don't know if you're going to be alive the next morning. Your life is going to, your life is going to, be, you're going to have despair because this is what's going to happen to you. Now, why would he bless them more than any other nation when they obeyed him? Well, he said why in Deuteronomy 28.10, that all the nations are going to see why you're being blessed is because of your right relationship with me as the only true and the living God. Why would he vex, frustrate, and allow these horrible things to happen to the people of Israel when they would rebel against him? He he said in verse 37, you shall be literally, what the Hebrew says, a horror to all the other nations when they see the ways that you're suffering and everything else. What he's saying to Israel back here, when they came out of Israel under Moses, Israel, this is the twofold way I'm going to deal with you historically. And the idea was this. One of God's purposes, out of seven purposes, the Bible says why he brought Israel into existence, one of them is for the glory of God, for the glory of God. And Isaiah 43 says, I created Israel for my glory. And in in, in Isaiah 46, he calls Israel, Israel my glory, Israel my glory. That's one of the reasons he brought Israel into existence. What's the significance of that? The word glory in the Bible refers to what is impressive or influential concerning a person or thing. For example, Jacob's wealth in the Hebrew text of the Old Testament is called the glory of Jacob. That means that Jacob was so wealthy, that's what impressed other people with him and gave him influence in the lives of other people. And then in Genesis, Joseph's position in the Egyptian government is called the glory of of Joseph, which means it was that key position Joseph held in the Egyptian government that impressed other people with Joseph and gave him great influence. So God was saying to Israel, I brought you into existence. One reason out of many is to so impress the rest of the world with two truths concerning me. Number one, I'm the kind of God who will bless those people who listen to and obey my word that I've given to them. But number two, I'm also the kind of God who will curse, vex, and frustrate people who will not listen to and obey my word that I've given to them. And because of that, he he uses them as an object lesson to impress the world about these true truths concerning the true and the living God. It's no mistake he placed that nation state of Israel in the most strategic geographic location in all of planet Earth. You know, even the Gentile nations in ancient times called the land of Israel the navel of the earth, the center of the earth. Crossroads of three of the world's great continents, Africa, Asia, and Europe. And when Israel was there, 
back in, in Bible times, etc. If people from Europe or Asia wanted to travel down to the continent of Africa by land, not by sea, they had to travel right through the nation of Israel. And if people in Africa, when Israel would be there, wanted to travel by land up to Europe or over to Asia, they had to travel right up through the, la the land of Israel. The people of Israel probably had thousands of Gentiles every day traveling through their land where they could see when this land was being blessed more than they are. And he says in verse 10, that's going to arouse our curiosity. Why are you being blessed more than we are? Well, it's because of the God that we belong to and we worship. And he can do the same thing for you if you worship him and obey what he says to you through his word. But on the other hand, when they see Israel suffering so much, they're going to raise the question, why is Israel suffering more than we are? Again. And so what Daniel is being revealed to him here is this period called the indignation when Israel's out of joint with God and rebellion against him as a nation, etc. And so the, the former part of the indignation was their Assyrian and Babylonian captivities, but the latter portion of the indignation uh, will be uh, from 538 B.C. when Cyrus, the Medo-Persian, ended the Babylonian captivity and told the Jews to go back home and rebuild. That began the latter part of the indignation from 538 B.C. right up to the second coming of Jesus Christ upon planet Earth is what God is revealing here uh, to Daniel uh, through this. Now, uh, to put it another way, the term the indignation is the title in the Bible for God's program for Israel, the indignation for God's program for Israel until they repent and get right with God. The, the title of God's program for the Gentiles is the times of the Gentiles, the times of the Gentiles. And that's the title of God's program for the Gentiles where he raises up these Gentile nations uh, for different purposes. Now, what's intriguing is this. Uh, in chapter 8, there's a little horn. And the little horn in, in uh, Daniel chapter 8 is Antiochus Epiphanes. Antiochus Epiphanes, this Greek ruler from Syria, who was going to persecute the people of Israel and try to force them uh, into false worship. That's a little horn, Antiochus Epiphanes. The little horn of chapter 7 that we looked at, remember we saw the future revived Roman Empire will consist of 10 divisions with 10 equal co-rulers at the same time, but after a while there's an 11th little horn that rises to power from within that and then he overthrows three of the original ten, becomes the dominant ruler then of that future revived Roman Empire. The little horn in Daniel chapter 7 is the Antichrist, that future ruler of the seven-year tribulation period of planet Earth. But the little horn of chapter 8 is Antiochus Epiphanes, who was going to persecute the Jews back there in Bible times after the Jews returned home from their Babylonian captivity. Now, to show you the difference between them, because some people say the little horn in chapter 8 is also the Antichrist, but it can't be. Three reasons why they're different from each other. First, 
The little horn of chapter 7 comes from which kingdom? The Roman kingdom, the fourth kingdom portrayed there. The four beasts coming out. The little horn of chapter 7 belongs to Rome, the fourth Gentile kingdom foretold there in chapter 7. But the little horn of chapter 8 is from what kingdom? Greece, the third kingdom. The third kingdom doesn't belong to Rome at all. In addition, the little horn of chapter 7 was what number of horn? The 11th horn. He was an 11th horn, and he roots up three horns. He roots up three horns when he comes to power. He was an 11th horn there for the future tribulation, Roman Empire, etc. The little horn in chapter 8 is a fifth horn because there were, there were four horns after Alexander died and everything for the four divisions, but two of them became prominent, Egypt and Syria. And so out of Syria, which is one of the four horns, there is this another horn that rises up from Syria. So that Antiochus is a fifth horn, one horn out of the four horns that would be part of the, of the Grecian kingdom in the future. Now, the little horn of chapter 7, according to Revelation 7, how many years or months was he going to persecute people? 42 months or three and a half years. 42 months or three and a half years. When Antichrist comes to power or the future revival of an empire, he will persecute people for 42 months. Uh, Jewish people, but also people that get saved uh, during the tribulation period. 42 months or three and a half years. According to the little horn of chapter 8, Antiochus Epiphanes, he was persecuting the Jews for a period of six years, over six years, or literally 2,300 days. 2,300 days, which would be over six years. So the little horn of chapter 7 is not the same as the little horn of chapter 8. And so in chapter 8, Daniel is struggling with what's going to happen to our people in the future. And God was revealing to him what was going to happen. That Medo-Persia was going to be conquered by the Greeks. And after Alexander the Great, the great uh, king of, of the kingdom, Greek kingdom, dies, it'll be divided, his kingdom. Only two of those divisions become prominent, Egypt and Syria. But from Syria, one of those kings, Antiochus Epiphanes, is going to severely persecute the people of Israel in their homeland. So that was his answer to Daniel along those lines. Now, when we come to chapter 9, uh, God opens up to Daniel his extended future program for Israel. His extended future program for Israel. In chapter 9, verses, nine, uh, chapter nine, verses 1 and 2, Daniel indicates that in 538 B.C., 538 B.C., which is the year after Medo-Persia conquered Babylon, when Cyrus ended the Babylonian captivity of the Jews, told them they could go home, Daniel didn't go back home. He stayed there under the Medo-Persian rule. So 538 B.C., Daniel found 
God's declaration through the prophet Jeremiah, through the prophet Jeremiah, that the Babylonian captivity of the Jews would last for 70 years. That's very clearly taught in two passages in Jeremiah. Jeremiah 25, verses 11 and 12. Jeremiah 25, verses 11 and 12. And Jeremiah 29, verses 10 through 14. That the, uh, the, captivity, the Babylonian captivity of the Jews would last for 70 years. Well, since the captivity had begun in 605 B.C., when Daniel uh, found this declaration in Jeremiah, he's calculating and seeing, hey, those 70 years are almost up. We're very near the end of this, near its, its end. And so in light of that, Daniel, realizing that that captivity would end and their people could go back home again and maybe function independently as a nation and prosper and everything, he approached God with a tremendous attitude of prayer. This revelation is prompting him to do this. See, we're almost at the end of the Babylonian captivity, as God foretold. So he approaches God with an attitude of prayer of genuine repentance, of genuine repentance on part of the people of Israel, thinking if they repent, God will surely end their captivity and let them go back home to their country. In the first part of his prayer, he utters confession of Israel's rebellion against God and God's word, pours out his heart on this. God, you were right to do this to us and remove us from our homeland and put us into captivity for 70 years. You were right, and I confess to you as part of the nation of Israel that it's, uh, I'm confessing Israel's rebellion against you and your word. The second part of his prayer is supplication, asking God for God to forgive Israel and restore the people, Jerusalem and the temple to their former estate. That's what he's praying for. God, please, please forgive us as a people and restore as a people back to Jerusalem and the temple into their former estate, their former way of life, before they were carried captive to the homeland. That was his prayer. Beginning in verse 20 and going through verse 27, God gives his response to Daniel's prayer, to Daniel's prayer. Before Daniel stopped praying, God sent the angel Gabriel to him in the form of a man with new revelation that he'd never given before new revelation he had never given before. The revelation was to the effect that God would continue to chasten Israel. God would continue to chasten Israel for an extended period of time after the captivity. That's what he's revealing to Daniel through the angel Gabriel. That God would continue to chasten Israel for an extended period of time after the captivity made it clear that the Babylonian captivity was only the first portion of God's indignation against Israel. The latter portion of God's indignation would come after the captivity of Israel ends, is what Gabriel, by revelation of God, is revealing to Daniel, to Daniel. Now, the new revelation 
is contained in chapter 9, verses 24 through 27. And you may want to turn to that together with me. Daniel chapter 9, verses 24 through 27. This is a very, very crucial prophecy that God is delivering. It has tremendous implications of what's going to happen to Christ in his first coming and what's going to happen to Israel later on, leading up to the second coming of the Lord Jesus. Uh, the revelation was to the effect that God would continue to chasten Israel for an extended period of time after the captivity, and that the latter portion of that indignation was going to come after the captivity. So the new revelation in, in verses 24 through 27, it revealed that God would continue to chasten Israel. He would continue to chasten Israel for at least 70 periods of seven years. 70 periods of 70 years. That would be God's extensive future chastening of Israel when it's rebellion against him. He would continue to chasten Israel for at least 70 periods of seven years. Uh, look at the wood, please, at verse 24. This is what Gabriel said to Daniel. Seventy weeks are determined. The word translated weeks is literally seven. It'd be 70 periods of seven years. Each period consists of 70 years. So it's literally 70 sevens are determined upon your people and upon your holy city. Some very important things to see here. Uh, one thing is, it's the only Old Testament prophecy that we're going to see that presents the exact time that Messiah would be in the world presenting himself to Israel as its Messiah during his first coming. This gives a very precise chronology that told the exact season of the year and the year the Messiah would be present in his first coming to the nation of Israel and officially present himself to the nation as its promised Messiah. We're going to see this. We probably won't get into that chronology until tomorrow morning. But we, we have to look at seven very significant things to note about this prophecy. Seven very significant things to see about this prophecy. First, this Prophecy is God's program exclusively for whom? Your people and your holy city. Every part of this is God's program uniquely for the nation of Israel and for the city of Jerusalem. It has nothing to do with the church. It has nothing to do with the church. It's exclusively God's program for the nation of Israel and their temple and their city, and their city, as we're going to see. Uh, that's the first significant thing, and that's in verse 24. The second significant thing to note about this is the amount of time covered by this prophecy. Amount of time covered by this prophecy. Seventy times seven is how much? 490. The amount of time covered by this prophecy is 490 years. 490 years. 
with precision, 490 years. That's very clear in verse 24. Now keep in mind, why seven-year periods? Well, what was the calendar system that God gave to the nation of Israel when they came out of their bondage and slavery from Egypt? When you read Leviticus 25, verses 3 through 9, he divided up their calendar into how many segments? Seven-year segments. For every one of these segments, the first six years you work. The seventh one, you rest. You let the land rest and all the rest. God gave Israel a unique calendar system way back there when he brought them out of Egypt. This is my calendar system for you. Seven-year segments. And so now, in light of those seven-year segments of their calendar system, he's saying to them, Daniel, here's a unique program for the nation of Israel in the future. You've been wondering what's going to happen to our nation in the future. Seventy periods of time are involved in this program. And each one of those periods of time consists of seven years. So that it's a 490-year program that he's foretelling here for the nation of Israel. Then the third important thing to see is all 490 years would be necessary to accomplish six things with the people of Israel. All 490 years would be necessary to accomplish six things with the, with the people of Israel. The first thing is this, to stop Israel's rebellion against God. To stop Israel's rebellion against God. The way our English says, to finish the transgression. It says Israel's rebellion against God. It's going to take all 490 years of this unique program of Israel to stop their rebellion against God and bring them as a nation back in a right relationship with God. The second thing, it's going to take all 490 years to end Israel's sins of daily life, not just their overall rebellion against God, but to end Israel's sins of daily life, of daily life. It says to make an end of sins, plural, end of sins, plural. The third thing it would take all 490 years to accomplish with Israel is this, Christ's atoning work not applied to Israel, Christ's atoning work, not applied to Israel as a nation until it accepts him as its Messiah and Savior at his second coming. You see, the the 49 years will end at the second coming of Christ back to planet Earth. Because the last period of seven years is the tribulation period, the tribulation period. And so it's going to take all that time for Christ's atoning work to be applied to the nation of Israel, you know, as a nation, until it accepts him as its Messiah and Savior at his second coming. Now, individual Jews have it applied to them before that time when they acknowledge Jesus as their Messiah and Savior. But this is talking for the whole nation, for the whole nation. The fourth thing that's going to take 480 years to accomplish is this. When Israel repents and accepts Christ at his second coming, it will be given righteousness that will last forever. When Israel repents as a nation, accepts Christ as a second coming, it will be given righteousness that will last 
forever. Or it may also be interpreted this way. Uh, it talks about bringing in everlasting righteousness. It may refer to the righteous rule that Christ will establish on earth in conjunction with his second coming. That may be another means of interpreting here, bringing in everlasting righteousness. It may be referring uh, to the righteous rule that Christ will establish on earth in conjunction with his second coming, when he sets up God's millennial kingdom. The fifth thing it's going to take all 480 years with Israel to accomplish is this. When Israel ends its daily sins, when it ends its daily sins at the end of the 490 years, then all revelation, all revelation that came through vision and prophecy concerning God's chastening of Israel can be sealed up. Again, when Israel ends its daily sins at the end of the 480 years, when Christ comes to the second coming, then all revelation that came through vision and prophecy concerning God's chastening of Israel can be sealed up. Because this is when Israel will finally be right with God. And right with God from that time on. From that time on. So that now, this whole program called the indignation, all the revelation about the indignation when they're being chastened can be sealed up and put away permanently. And never opened again. The sixth thing, when Messiah will come in his second coming at the end of the 490 years of chastening, the temple complex in Jerusalem, the temple complex in Jerusalem will be anointed in consecration for God's service. Will be anointed in consecration for God's service. They will have a millennial temple and that's where Messiah is going to dwell, according to Isaiah chapter 2 and others. And we're told in Isaiah 2, verses 1 through 4, now that the millennial king is set up, the greatest uh, temple and everything that Israel's ever had will be there, and Messiah is sitting there as the last Adam for God upon planet Earth. We're told that all the nations are going to come to Israel's capital city, Jerusalem, for two purposes. To hear Messiah teach God's word to them, all the nations. And secondly, to be instructed on how God's rule is to be administered over them. What he's saying is that when Israel finally gets right with God as a nation, and they finally accept their true Messiah and Savior, Israel's capital city will become the governmental and spiritual center of the whole world, of the whole world. And all the nations are going to come there to hear him teach personally God's word to them and to instruct them on how God's rule has to be administered over them. Do you remember when they were at Mount Sinai? They came out of Egypt. God calls Moses to the top of the mountain, gives them the Mosaic law. But in Exodus chapter 19, verse 6, God now tells Israel, here is one of the reasons, actually two reasons, why I have brought you into existence in right relationship with me. One is this. You are to be to me 
a holy nation. A holy nation. And the word holy, its root meaning, is divided. To be holy is to be divided from other persons and things in the sense that you're different, distinct, unique, in contrast with other persons and things. And what he's saying to Israel is this. In either way, all the Gentile nations up to this point have rejected me as the true and the living God, have, have invented false gods and goddesses of their own to worship. In light of that, I've raised you up to be different from these pagan Gentile nations. You're to be holy, a holy nation, different from them, that you worship exclusively the only true and living God and not these man-made gods and goddesses who can't do a thing. They can't see, they can't hear, they can't talk, they can't walk. They're just a block of wood and stone. That's all they are. Second thing, he says, I've also brought you out of Egypt for you to be, for me, a kingdom of priests. I've raised you up as a whole kingdom to be the spiritual leader of the whole world. In Isaiah 43, I mean, centuries after Mount Sinai, he said to Israel, you are to be my witnesses. He said, the Gentiles have eyes to see, but they're blinded to reality. They have ears to hear, but they're blind to ultimate reality. In light of that, you are to be my witnesses to the blind and deaf Gentiles spiritually. And the Hebrew word translated uh, witness there means repetition. One of the reasons I've raised you up in existence as a spiritual leader of the world is for you to repeatedly keep telling the pagan Gentiles, you're barking up a wrong tree by all these man-made images that you've made on your own. There's only one true and living God. The God that demonstrated that so graphically by overwhelming Egypt so much, they were willing to get the people of Israel out of there in a hurry, and then crossing the Red Sea, he demonstrates through those powerful plagues upon Egypt, part of the waters of the Red Sea, there's only one true and living God. The one that brought us out of Egypt. Keep saying this to the Gentile people. I brought you up to be my witnesses to them here upon planet Earth. And that's what they're going to finally do. Isaiah 61, verse 6. Talking to Jews ahead of time of that future millennial kingdom, he says... You will be called the priests of the Lord and the ministers of our God. The Gentiles will call you the people of Israel, the priests of the Lord, the ministers of our God. They will recognize that you people of Israel are God's appointed spiritual leaders of the whole world. Zechariah chapter 8, verses 20 and following, indicates that when Messiah is here ruling, people from all the nations are going to say to each other, let's go to Jerusalem to worship. Again, let's go to Israel's capital city to worship. And it goes on to say, when that happens, ten Gentiles will lay hold of one Jew and say, you take us with you to Jerusalem to worship because we see that God is with you. God appointed them to be his spiritual leaders. And like all the rest of us, they failed God in doing what we should be. But the reason he puts them through these chastening processes is to bring them to the point where when Messiah comes, they will finally accept him for who they are, for who he is. And then they will be God's spiritual leaders. We're going to be politicians in Christ's government from all we can discern. 
but they are going to be the spiritual leaders of the world, leading people in right relationship with the true and the living God, the true and the living God. Um, let me just share something with you here very quickly. Bill Sutter, who's the director of the mission that I minister full-time with, the Friends of Israel Gospel Ministry, over the years has befriended a, a key rabbi in the land of Israel. That rabbi has responsibility of oversight of 36 synagogues throughout the land of Israel. And about two years ago, Bill and his wife decided on their own just to go over, not leading a tour. They rented a car just to travel around the land of Israel. This rabbi somehow learned that Bill was there in the land of Israel, and he tracked him down and said, Mr. Sutter, would you please come to where I am? I want to talk with you. And so Bill and his wife went. When they sat down opposite the man behind the desk, the rabbi said, Mr. Mr. Sutter, you and I disagree with each other concerning the Messiah. You believe Jesus is the Messiah. I believe it's the nation of Israel, God's gift to the world. But he said, I'm being forced to come to the conclusion that our nation of Israel has totally failed God for the whole purpose he brought us into existence, and that is to reach the whole world on behalf of the true and the living God. We have miserably failed God's purpose for bringing us into existence. He said, that forces me to draw another conclusion. Since our nation has failed to do what God has told us to do, I'm convinced God is now looking to people like you who believe what you believe to do the job that he brought the nation of Israel to existence to do, to reach the whole world with the truth about the true and the living God. That's an incredible confession on the part of a leading rabbi in the nation of Israel. God our Father, we worship you together with your Son, Jesus Christ, and the Holy Spirit as the only true and living God. We thank you, Lord, that you've raised up the nation of Israel for some very specific purposes. And we realize they're frail human beings with a sin nature like all the rest of us were conceived and born with. They've often failed you, just as we've often failed you, for certain in many ways. But we thank you that you have not rejected them once for all, forevermore. You hold on to them as your chosen people for your honor and for your glory. And we thank you that as a result of your son becoming incarnated, that those of us who are not part of the people of Israel get benefit from your son becoming incarnated in Jewish flesh and dying in our place as our substitute. And Father, for those of us who love you and your son, we also love the people of Israel and for that nation. And Lord, we pray that you will hasten the day in which they will finally come as a nation into right recognition of you and who their true Messiah is and finally fulfill the whole purpose, at least one of the major purposes for which you brought that nation into existence. Do that, we pray, in the name of the Messiah, 
your Son, the Lord Jesus, our Savior. Amen.